0: Happy holidays, everyone. This is Volts for December 23rd, 2022. The right-wing groups behind renewable energy misinformation. I'm your host, David Roberts. It is easy to find stories in the media these days about communities blocking solar, wind, and other clean energy projects. This has prompted an enormous amount of discourse about NIMBYs, and the challenges of permitting clean projects. What's often left out of the discourse and almost always left out of those stories is how such community groups receive organizational help and money from billionaire-funded right-wingers. Across the country and the Internet, there are hundreds of conservative think tanks, groups, and individuals working to stir up community opposition to renewable energy, With misinformation and outright lies. With virtually no public scrutiny, they have secured state level policies restricting renewable energy siting in dozens of states. Independent journalist Michael Thomas set about to learn more about these right wing groups. He joined anti renewable energy Facebook groups, combed through the tax filings of various right wing think tanks, and tried to trace funding sources. I'm excited to talk to him about what he found, the groups involved, the tactics they use, the policies they've helped pass, and the best way to fight back. All right, then, with no further ado, Michael Thomas, welcome to Volts. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me.
1: I've been a longtime reader and uh, am a fan of the Volts podcast, so really happy to be here.
0: So for some reason, you decided to uh, jump in and immerse yourself in the world of anti-renewable energy, people and organizations and communications online. Um, before we jump into the specifics, what, what led you to to this? Did you get sort of pulled in bit by bit or did you just decide to do a project on this at some point?
1: Yeah, it was, uh, honestly not that intentional. Um, I was reading a lot of stories over the summer about NIMBY opposition to local solar and wind projects and was following a lot of the discourse and debate over the permitting reform bill. And, um, One story caught my attention that was about a group of residents on the East Coast that were trying to block a offshore wind farm and a substation that was going to be put on land to bring the power to land. And uh, it appeared to be just a normal resident group, um, kind of the classic NIMBY arguments that they were worried about property values or didn't like the site of the wind farm and then I read this subtle, just one-line mention of a think tank that I'd heard of, the Caesar Rodney Institute, and this is a part of a much larger group of think tanks that have been funded for years by fossil fuel companies and uh, far-right billionaires. So I started looking into it and discovered that uh, they were very involved in the effort and giving some of these resident groups money to fund lawsuits and support. And so I started to report on that story and uh, it kind of got me deep into the world of climate misinformation and clean energy misinformation. And I just really became curious about what was going on and if there was a bigger story here and uh, ended up working on a series of stories over the last month and a half. And uh, I learned a lot in the process.
0: Yeah, this is a theme I'll return to later, but it really in some sense, should not come as a surprise to anyone that this network of anti-renewable energy quote unquote citizen groups across the country is being funded and coordinated by right wing (laughs) by right wing operators. Like of course it is, you know, the Tea Party was like we've just learned that over and over again, but it just seems like the pro-renewable energy forces, the pro-climate forces, just kind of sleep on that and just kind of don't pay attention to it, just kind of let it run in the background. So it's a little insane that it's not a bigger point of discussion among green types. So I'm glad you did this, and I'm glad we're talking about it. So one of the things you did, God bless you, is wade into Facebook and join a bunch of anti-wind and solar groups. Good Lord. So tell us What messages about renewable energy are they emphasizing in these groups? Like, what are the consistent themes?
1: Yeah. So I clearly know how to have a good time by uh, (laughs) joining all of these groups and sifting through the posts. So as context, I, I was doing this reporting on local opposition and learning about some of these think tanks and I uh, learned in that research that a lot of these resident groups are organizing on Facebook groups and pages. And that makes sense if you look at the demographics of these groups, they tend to be uh, a lot of boomers and a lot of people who are very active on Facebook. And so I joined a few of them at first. And then in the groups, there are often uh, reshares of Posts in other groups, and so by joining three or four, I quickly started to see that there were way more of these groups than I had initially expected. And in total, I ended up finding about forty groups. I joined all of them and just started scrolling through and looking at the posts and taking screenshots and taking notes and um, and trying to understand how do the people that are in these groups communicate about clean energy? What are the common narratives? because there are usually between 500 and 2,000 people in these groups. Uh, So we're talking about tens of thousands of people in very small communities that are receiving this messaging. So it's, I think, really important.
0: And, of course, you know, just to point out the obvious, these are probably the hardcore, and they take those messages and spread them word of mouth to many, many thousands more, right? Totally. It's a much larger audience than just the members.
1: Yeah. It's also, I think, really important to note that these tend to be the most civically engaged people. So yes, on TikTok, a video might go viral about how great solar panels are. But if the people watching that video don't show up to the county commission meeting, then it doesn't really matter necessarily, right. or, or it does matter, but it's not as effective. Mm-hmm. So these are a lot of people who are retired or who are very engaged in their communities And so what starts on Facebook quickly bleeds into town halls and county commission meetings. And often the discourse is really intense and really emotionally charged. But um, to answer your question of what sort of themes and messages I saw, there was a range of posts. Some of them were misleading claims about clean energy Like an example that I saw a lot of was that uh, solar panels and wind turbines uh, are made using rare earth materials, and they're made in China, uh, and China uses a lot of coal. And so the implication is that clean energy is not actually that clean, and it's not good for the environment, which of course, the status quo energy system we have today that relies on fossil fuels is terrible for the environment, kills millions (laughs) of people a year, and is wreaking havoc on our, our environment. And these are solutions that are orders of magnitude better, but certainly not perfect. So they're sort of driving a wedge in, in some of that. And another similar one is that wind turbines kill birds. This of course. This is a famous argument uh, against wind. So you'll see like memes, like if this was um, a bird that had been killed by an oil spill, this image would be all over the front page news. Uh. <laughs> and that one... It spread like wildfire. Like that thing had (laughs) tens of thousands of shares. Oh,
0: yes. You get the hypocrisy of the mainstream media in there, too. You're hitting all the buttons. Exactly. And then another
1: that starts to get us into the from misleading to just lies is that (laughs) the wind turbines or solar panels are going to destroy property values. So we're talking about 25 percent, 50 percent declines in your property value. And this was Uh, of course, famously shared by Donald Trump uh, in a, I think, RNC meeting a couple years ago where he says, wind turbines cause cancer and if you live near them, bang, 50% drop in your property values. So
0: (laughs) let's just pause to note that Donald Trump is just perfectly squarely in the demographic to be receiving these messages.
1: Totally. And interestingly, he's been against wind energy for years i mean his goes back to like 2012 it's a golf course right is i think in scotland there was a a golf course that they were going to set up wind turbines near and uh, so he's been spreading this misinformation longer than uh, most people so that was a really common one the property value argument of course again numerous studies have showed that there's either minimal or no impact on property values when clean energy projects go into a community. But there is one London School of Economics study, which is a big name, very reputable source, that found that it dropped by, I think it's something like 8% or 10%. -hmm. Um, That gets shared a lot in these communities and by some of these influential anti-clean energy thought leaders. And important to look at that study and the actual details of it because if you do, it found that there were only three homes that they looked at. So we're talking about a sample <laughs> size of three. Uh, and again, if you look at much larger sample sizes, there is um, no evidence that it really hurts property values. And then the last two that I'll share kind of uh, archetypes of posts I saw, one was the wind turbine on fire post.
0: Yes, I love, they love those wind turbine on fire pictures i see those all the time even even on uh, twitter yeah and i was really surprised to see these at first i actually hadn't ever
1: seen an image of a wind turbine on fire or a video but when i'm scrolling through these groups they're like every 10 posts or something (laughs) and i started to think like oh my god this stuff is dangerous like if a wind turbine caught fire and it falls down and i mean it you can see where it would, it would scare you. So I looked into the data to see how common this was. And of course, I found that the Department of Energy has done a study on this. They found that I think in 2017, there were something like 50,000 wind turbines in the country, and only 40 of them had a safety incidence like this. So <laughs> it's an incredibly rare event that is made to seem uh, very common and therefore really scary to imagine a, a project like that going up in your community. And then the last one that I'll share, this is kind of a famous anti-wind piece of misinformation, was um, posts about wind turbine syndrome. Oh, Again, yes. this is something that I had never heard of uh, before and in, clearly in different communities. <laughs> and so this is based on a 2006 study that found that there were a number of people living near wind farms that would develop headaches and nausea. And this uh, study spread like crazy. And there have been something like 20 or 25 peer-reviewed studies on this since then, and none of them have been able to replicate the same findings. None of them have found any association between wind turbines and negative health effects.
0: I feel like I remember one out of England where they had like wind turbine syndrome, and then they did a, like a, a community comparison. in like another community, they went in early and paid residents. They basically paid residents like a small percentage of the profits of the wind farm, you know, to buy them in. And there was no wind turbine syndrome at all in the in the second community. Interesting. Weirdly a little money can ward off that particular syndrome, it seems. So
1: one interesting thing that I found in, in some of this research on wind turbine syndrome is that there's one exception that I found where people do start to develop negative health effects, and that's if they've already read information about wind turbine syndrome Uh. or about the negative health effects. And so it's actually really sad because a lot of people are posting this stuff and they're reaching a lot of communities that may or may not end up with wind turbines. And um, there's a great story in BuzzFeed uh, a year or two back that uh, was written by joseph bernstein and he interviewed a lot of people and in the end he kind of concludes the story saying that as he started to talk to more people and he was sleeping in his hotel near the wind farm he suddenly started to hear it and he suddenly Uh. started to be (laughs) driven crazy and so it's yeah it's it's unfortunate because i think a lot of people will probably kind of have that placebo or or start to uh be affected by those
0: uh in their community that is so darkly hilarious. So let's talk a little bit about how these groups organize. I mean, it's not like these random groups of uh, misinformed and irritable boomers know instinctively how to organize, how to communicate, how to get results, how to block things at the state level. So who's – let's talk a little bit about uh, the people who are helping them. And you did a piece specifically about this guy named John Draws Jr. Tell us a little bit about him and – you know he's helping these groups organize what is he kind of telling them what is what sort of advice is he giving to these groups like presumably you know he's on the lookout for these groups and in communication with all these groups uh what's his message to them yeah so john draz is
1: certainly one of the most interesting people i've ever uh, reported on i learned about him as i was Uh, wading into the misinformation in some of these communities, I started to see a lot of posts to this guy's website. And I went and uh, looked at the site, and it it just has tons of resources on how to block a wind project or a solar project in your community. And uh, they're incredibly effective tools, all, of course, styled in Bright red fonts and like Comic Sans <laughs> of font and PDFs, but it's just like packed with dense, probably really great information if you're trying to to kill a project. But stylistically, uh, uh, certainly interesting. Um, so some backstory on on John draws. Uh, in 2011, he was a retired real estate investor. Spent most of his career uh, buying and flipping real estate in North Carolina and. That year, he learned about this bill that was going through the state legislature debating what to do about sea level rise that was coming and how to adapt to that as a state. So draws who has no background in climate science or climate adaptation or, or anything related, creates a 125-slide PowerPoint <laughs> titled, Our Sea Level Policy from Science or Lobbyists. And he goes through and... Basically, debunks NOAA and all of these US agencies, science, and all these peer reviewed studies saying none of this is true and the sea level here isn't going to rise and climate change isn't happening and kind of puts in all of the classic climate denial in this thing. And he was incredibly effective at getting the ear of the Republican legislators. So he met with tons of them, gave this presentation to them, and was even quoted in the Washington Post in an article. Uh, somehow, the Washington Post fact-checking team didn't catch this, but there was a story that ran where he's cited as a local physicist <laughs> and uh, as an opponent to this bill. Uh, so,
0: kind of what you'd call a lay physicist, maybe exactly. <laughs> so,
1: uh, North Carolina eventually decides to vote against this bill. They don't take those climate adaptation measures. And this gets the attention of American Tradition Institute, ATI, which is a climate denial think tank that became well-known when they attacked some climate scientists like Michael Mann and um, spread a, a bunch of lies about him. And so ATI brings John Draws on as a senior fellow. And in 2012, they organized this now infamous anti-wind energy meeting in D.C. with really a who's who of climate deniers and um, and a group of uh, local residents around the country who are trying to block projects. And uh, there was a leaked memo from this meeting that I think is worth quoting from. Uh, do you mind if I share a, a no, few quotes ahead. from this to give you a sense of, of what it has? So it leads, uh, the minimum national campaign goal is to constructively influence national and state wind energy policies. Uh, then they go on. The goal is to cause subversion in the message of industry so that it effectively becomes so bad, no one wants to admit in public that they are for it. And they're talking about wind energy. Much like wind has done to coal by turning green to black and clean to dirty. Ultimate goal, change policy direction based on the message.
0: How many dozens of sort of vaguely progressive campaigns have you seen that are out there just raising awareness you know, with the left loves to raise awareness. And this guy on the right is like, you know, screw awareness. We want to change policy. We are after policy changes. Totally.
1: And they were incredibly effective at this. So this is back in 2012. And Draws understood long before terms like fake news or alternative facts became really popular. He knew that If you provided people with an alternative story or an alternative set of facts, some small percentage of the population is going to believe it. So rather than debate the little policy details and kind of get lost in the weeds and maybe make a large number of people mildly opposed to clean energy, (laughs) they spread this misinformation that gets a very small number of people incredibly passionate and incredibly emotionally charged and believing lies about clean energy. Things like wind energy is bad for the environment. That's an example of, quote, turning clean to dirty, uh, which is what he wanted to do.
0: Famously, Karl Rove's strategy, right? He's like, you find your opponent's virtues, what they're selling as their virtues, and go straight at them, right? Totally. You go straight at the merits. And so you go after sustainability and you go after, um, you know, good for the economy and good for the environment. Absolutely. So he ended up teaching all of
1: these activists that were at the meeting. And then um, in the 10 years since then, uh, he's taught thousands of people some of these tactics. And as I was going through all of his materials on his site and looking through old documents, I kind of started to write down like John draws rules uh, for (laughs) anti-wind opposition. And one of them that really stood out to me was this belief Uh, Of his, that in order to win, you have to have aggressive demands and stick to them. So it's all about holding your line and and saying, We don't want a single wind turbine in our community. It's not about taking concessions like.
0: Wait, not preemptively uh, 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 conceding things, not going and saying, We're reasonable. We want to find a reasonable middle. Uh, Wow, interesting. Interesting, interesting. So they basically just say, We don't want a single
1: project um, or a single turbine to go up. And this is part of what creates such a toxic discourse in local communities because there's no attempt at compromise, which is, I think, Mm -hmm. a really important thing for local communities when they're debating these things. And uh, instead, they aim for either outright bans of wind energy through these local ordinances or setback requirements that require a Wind turbine to be sited something like 2,000 feet from a home or like 2,000 feet away from one another. And and when you play this out, wind companies just can't create a project in a community like that. So it's an effective ban with different language.
0: I was aware of this happening, but it's kind of amazing. So, um, you know, the Biden administration has these huge goals for offshore wind and has made a bunch of big announcements and, um, you know, started various processes. And since they have made announcements, they have been sued in every <laughs> state on the coast. So, you know, just so listeners are aware of the s- scope of this thing, like there are these anti-wind groups seated in every state where there's wind. So one of the things you you wrote about in that story is none of the local media stories about these groups, you know, so like they propose an offshore wind farm and some sort of like earnest residence for good things group starts and the local media inevitably treats these as spontaneous democratic <laughs> uprisings of citizens and it's not that hard. You don't have to dig that hard to find out that they're all getting funding from the same sort of network. So, a, do you have any diagnosis of what the hell's wrong with local media? <laughs> why, won't, why won't they tell this story? And then B, tell us a little bit about the state policy network, the SPN on the right, and its sort of network of funding.
1: Sure. So the state policy network and uh, the group of think tanks that are members of this uh, are really the core of the fossil fuel funded opposition and a lot of the things that we talked about earlier. Um, so there's a group of I think it's something like 50 think tanks. They're all set up as 501c3 nonprofits, and they're in states across the country. And uh, if anyone's read Jane Meyer's uh, amazing book on this topic, uh, Dark Money, about Mm. the Koch brothers' efforts to uh, try to prevent climate policy from passing in the country, you'll know that uh, a lot of fossil fuel billionaires uh, were involved in setting up these nonprofits. So a lot of the think tanks in the state policy network were either co-founded with the Koch brothers or given initial seed funding by the Koch brothers, who run, I'm sure all of your listeners know, Koch Industries, uh, one of the biggest uh, fossil fuel companies in the country. And since then, the Koch brothers continue to fund a lot of these nonprofits, but so do dozens or hundreds of billionaires that are in other extractive and dirty industries around the country and don't want to see climate policy pass. So the state policy network is the organizer of all of this so that they can take learnings from one state and pass those Mm -hmm. through to the rest of the states. So most recently, a group of bills that I saw that passed through the state policy network was some of the preemption bans on local governments that wanted to ban natural gas uh, right. in buildings. So it's no coincidence that all of those preemption bans had similar or in some cases the exact same language. It's a combination of the state policy network and then ALEC, the American legislative, uh, I'm going to butcher the acronym, but um, <laughs> there's basically the state policy network doing the 501c3 kind of research. And then ALEC writes the policy and gives it to legislators to pass. So that's some background on state policy.
0: That's worth just emphasizing briefly. it's not just that these groups get sort of standardized scripts and uh, directions for how to oppose things. There also there's a whole network of right wing groups that has uh, these sort of model bills model legislation, model you know, for every level of government so that these groups don't have to investigate policy or write their own policy, right? They just have a, you know they just take the template and change a few keywords. So it makes things very easy, you know. It's very easy for these groups. Every step is uh, is worked out for them. Yeah. P.S. It's the American Legislative Exchange Council that is incredibly ah. difficult to remember. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Probably on purpose, right? I mean, it's meant yeah. to be. It's meant to be bland and, and forgettable.
1: Yeah. Jane Meyer uh, wrote this article where she did some reporting on the State Policy Network, and there was an internal meeting between these think tanks where the head of state policy network described their strategy and their model, like the Ikea of conservative policy, where (laughs) you just like grab all your parts and pieces and assemble them yourself and then pass the bill.
0: All you need is the Allen wrench and everything else.
1: Yeah. uh, there for you. She's also described that kind of ecosystem as uh, like an assembly line where groups fund, uh, colleges first and universities that do research on something like climate policy or climate science. Uh, so the Koch brothers are giving millions and millions of dollars to universities. And then the think tanks take the ideas from those universities and they turn them into policy ideas. And then ALEC uh, and legislators that have been uh, given money by uh, these billionaires, they craft the actual policy and the legal language, and then they fund the politicians who end up voting for those. And it becomes an assembly line of conservative and anti-climate
0: policy. It's like a vertically integrated Ikea that owned its own supply chain and like its own customers. You know what I mean? It's like a full ecosystem. And so this is seems notable, right? So why doesn't the media... Note it. I mean, it's a little insane. Like, it seems like the first thing you'd do if you ran across one of these citizen groups is be like, hmm, I wonder where this came from. (laughs) Who's funding these people? But they don't even seem to ask. Yeah.
1: And it's important because the state policy network think tanks are setting up campaigns and are giving legal support to these groups. So they're very much intertwined and it's very much an effort by the fossil fuel industry through these nonprofits to block uh, this policy. Like just to give an example, one of the groups I'm currently writing a story on, Caesar Rodney Institute, they sent out 35,000 mailers in 2018 to residents all along the coast that were gonna see one of these wind projects. And they sent them all of the misinformation that I mentioned earlier that I saw in these Facebook groups. And then also a call for uh, financial support And they ended up raising $50,000 from these residents. They got 700 residents to join the group that they set up that had a very local grassroots name to it. Um, It's like Save Our Coast. And so now this group can in some ways legitimately say that we have 700 residents from the community who don't want this project to exist when they've really manufactured that opposition using money from fossil fuel companies to do it Uh, so of course caesar rodney institute got an award from the state policy network uh (laughs) for this it was one of the best communications campaigns Uh, of 2020
0: and it is too i hate it i hate to you know you hate to say anything positive about this but this is all brilliant i mean it's all so well done yeah well done evil it's incredibly effective
1: um and so to your question of why the Uh, local media in in these communities aren't covering this. I think this is a part of the larger story of the collapse of local news in America. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a part of this that is the story of these hedge funds or what are known as vulture funds who go and buy up local papers and gut them, fire all the journalists. And suddenly a newsroom that used to have 20 people has two people and they just graduated from college. So that's not going to produce the best reporting. And then you also have a media environment that is encouraging really quick stories, getting stuff out every single day and not doing deep reporting. So it's just hard to catch this when you get a press release, you turn that press release into an article and hit publish two hours later. Um, And that's the environment
0: we're in. Well, it seems like a concerted I mean, I'll return to this later. I don't want to get into it now, but it seems like a concerted effort to push this information so that local journalists had access to it Uh, could be done, say, by a a clever billionaire on the left. But uh, before we get to that, one of the twists of messaging lately is something you call wokewashing. Let's just touch on that briefly. This is from the, uh, it's something that the Texas Public Policy Foundation, which is one of these right-wing think tanks in the state policy network, another incredibly forgettable name. But uh, uh, it's one of the campaigns they're running. Tell us a little bit about what woke washing means.
1: Yes. Yeah, so Emily Atkin at Heated, uh, another Substack publication, and I ran a story recently about the Texas Public Policy Foundation, or TPPF. And one of the things that we looked at was how they're using environmental laws to Block offshore wind projects, and uh, a couple of the laws they're using are uh, NEPA and the Endangered Species Act, and it's worth noting that TPPF, in the Trump years, uh, was basically attacking these same laws, saying that they're preventing the country from building the energy that it needs, and they're destroying the economy.
0: The right has been attacking those laws since the 60s and 70s when they were passed, right?
1: Yeah, so TPPF uh, took a pretty dramatic uh, turn uh, (laughs) when Biden got in office and has suddenly become one of the biggest advocates for (laughs) the Endangered Species Act and NEPA. And most recently, they funded a group of uh, local fishermen on the East Coast who wanted to sue the Biden administration over their offshore wind leases. And in the lawsuit, they didn't make a lot of commercial claims. It wasn't necessarily about the fishing. It was really all about how these wind farms were going to further endanger the North Atlantic right whale, which is uh, endangered whale That uh, this is, of course, an endangered species and needs to be protected. But there's a whole process that a lot of environmental groups like NRDC and Conservation Law Foundation have signed off on and and signed an agreement with the developers of these projects. And there are a lot of measures taken to make sure that the construction of these projects don't further endanger those whales. But TPPF is uh, suing the Biden administration using these laws and, and really just trying to slow these projects down. So the term wokewashing came up when we interviewed a disinformation expert, and she used this term to describe when far-right groups use the language of justice to... Mm-hmm basically fight for injustice and against environmental law. So you're using uh, the language of the environmental movement to prevent its uh, goals.
0: God, it's effective, too, because like some of these concerns are not baseless. Like you say, like if you're going to protect the right whale, you do need to take measures. Like so if any of these groups cared about constructively engaging their, you know, like the the concerns are plausible enough that... I can see how they work quite well. Yeah. It's very devious. It's also another example of where
1: these groups are pushing for the far extreme solution and not compromise. So in these uh, lawsuits, the end of them says that the plaintiff's uh, request or the plaintiff's claim is that they want all projects that are associated with this new streamlined offshore lease program that was started in the Obama years, they want all of those projects to be stopped entirely. So that's every single offshore wind project in America. And we're talking about tens of of gigawatts of power. And so they're not asking for uh, what the environmental groups asked for when they were trying to protect the right whale, which is just some mitigation efforts and some changes to how they were going to construct the farm they're trying to kill every single project in America.
0: You know, uh, organizing these groups, these citizen groups on Facebook is, of course, not the only way of reaching uh, people on Facebook. There's also just Facebook ads. So in that respect, let's talk about Prager U, Prager University. (laughs) It makes me laugh to say the word university associated with this, but nonetheless, that is what it's called. Tell us about Prager and Prager U and the sort of Revelation that one of their co-founders have and how they sort of implemented that in practice.
1: So PragerU is a nonprofit media company that was started by Dennis Prager, who was a conservative radio host, still is, um, but has been doing this for about thirty years. And when I was in these local opposition groups on Facebook, I noticed a lot of their videos popping up, and so I wanted to dig in and learn more about PragerU. Um, I watch a lot of YouTube and have for many years and so I was already a little bit aware of the channel because they're everywhere. Yeah. It's everywhere. Anyone who spends time on YouTube will say
0: that. They come up on my feed. My sons sees them fly by all the time. They're ubiquitous.
1: Yeah. They target uh, 11 and 12 year olds. You see these stories, parents around of like what is this group doing sending my son these ads of uh, PragerU? So I looked at their YouTube channel and tried to find all of the videos that were related to climate and energy. I ended up finding about 20 of them and the titles of these videos kind of give away the message like it's it's so simple. Like one of them is Fossil Fuels Greener Than You Think. The whole message of this video which is delivered by Alex Epstein, who wrote a book called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, is that fossil fuels are clean, they're good for the environment, and that everything you've heard from environmentalists is wrong. And other videos include claims that clean energy is really bad for the environment. These are delivered by people like Michael Schellenberger and Bjorn Lomborg. And they're, again, making misleading claims based on real problems like wind turbines kill endangered birds or clean energy projects are built using materials that create environmental harm.
0: One of the interesting things you mentioned in the story is that they were sort of big into the straight up climate denial business. But then Facebook and Google passed policies saying you can't do the straight up (laughs) climate denial anymore. And that sort of created a pivot. Talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah. So after many years of creating videos with claims like there's no evidence that CO2 causes climate change, (laughs) uh, which is, of course, not true, (laughs) Facebook and Google changed their policies not to limit their videos. So their videos are still on these platforms, but they limited the ability for them to use ads to promote them. Mm. So I looked um, at Facebook's ad transparency tool, and I looked through PragerU's Form 990 IRS documents, and I found that they were spending tens of millions of dollars per year promoting videos on Facebook and Google. Wild. That's in part how they were able to reach 100 million people with these videos about climate change, fossil fuels being good, clean energy being bad. And I also looked into where they got the money because PragerU is a nonprofit and trying to figure out like, is there any connection here between fossil fuel companies? And sure enough, what I found was that in uh, (laughs) 2013, PragerU received a $6.25 million grant commitment from the Wilkes brothers in Texas who started Frac Tech, a fracking company, and they gave them a huge amount of funding to make their videos. Um, it's worth just for reference pointing out that Prager U at the time was bringing in about $400,000 a year. So this is a huge amount of money for them yeah. uh, at, at the time. And as a part of this, two members of the Wilkes family joined the board and then Shortly afterwards, they started making these videos about climate change and clean energy and fossil fuels. And uh, the members of the family were still on the board while they were making them.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, but then, you know, uh, to get back to the policy, the anti-denialism policy, they sort of have pivoted. And this seems like, I mean, it's hard not to see the whole right as a school of fish sometimes, but it seems like they've all kind of pivoted away from the hard denialism toward the kind of Schellenberger style, Lomborg style, green energy isn't green message. Yeah. And PragerU
1: has definitely uh, started to do this. And they are basically able to get around the new policies by Google and Facebook that have limited their ability to spread those pure climate denial videos and are now promoting the videos that say that Clean energy isn't good for the environment, which of course is going to be almost impossible for these tech companies to regulate. Because what's the difference between a legitimate NPR story about uh, a problem that we really need to figure out and need to solve uh, around the environmental impact of some of this mining for rare earth materials and the impact it's having on local communities? What's the difference between that and Prager Yu's video pointing it out, but turning a little bit of spin and maybe putting some misleading claims in it.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's it's one thing to police, you know, outright falsehoods, but you really cannot police good faith, right? <laughs> there is no algorithm for separating good faith from bad faith uh, claims in these videos. So there's no real way to systematically, it seems to me, I mean, maybe you've thought of something else, but it seems to me like there's just no systematic way to stop this stuff or block it or even flag it or i mean there's no real mechanism to do anything about it directly am i wrong about that
1: no i think this is just a really hard problem to solve i think that there's definitely ways to prevent some of it or there's better solutions out there between some of these tech companies like the last couple weeks has has shown us uh with twitter (laughs) that uh There's a lot of different approaches that tech companies can take (laughs) before being legally required to do something. Uh, Facebook and Google have said that they're going to flag climate misinformation. They aren't doing a great job, have a lot of room for improvement. They've said that they won't let people spend to promote climate denial in their videos. But then now you have Twitter and Elon Musk just unleashing a free-for-all of (laughs) uh, what he says is free speech, but in a lot of cases is... Uh, hateful rhetoric. And in the case of climate change, just misinformation and lies. And unsurprisingly, people like Jordan Peterson have come back and are posting (laughs) a lot of stuff about climate change with claims like CO2 is good for the environment and climate change isn't happening. And so I think there's definitely a a lot that these tech companies can do. And Twitter is evidence that uh, what they do has a real impact and can limit some of the spread of these ideas. But uh, another thing that I ran across in some of my research that some tech companies have started to experiment with is this idea of pre-bunking, where you basically expose people to facts about climate change before they click a link that has known misinformation on it. Yeah, And this comes out of some research out of Yale, I believe. And the impact of that in some studies seems to be good, but definitely not perfect and doesn't change people's opinions in a big way. So it's definitely not a panacea.
0: You know, we here on the left come to this dilemma again and again, which is you don't just want to be thinking about how to suppress other people's speech, right? I mean, that's an uncomfortable kind of place for us to be. That's not... uh, you know, you're you're constantly sort of dancing up against ethical quandaries, and and you know, like people who make those videos, you know, like you're what are you going to argue with them about whether it's good faith or bad faith? They can say it's good faith, and you know what I mean. So there's, there's no, it seems like the root of trying to suppress their speech is fraught. I mean, a ethically fraught, and b on a practical level, just doesn't seem to be very possible. But then, of course, you read all these studies about misinformation, which tell you that like once this kind of information is in someone's head, it is almost impossible to root it out. (laughs) No matter how many good facts you throw in the wake of bad facts, it's almost impossible to change people's minds. And you read all these studies that say being exposed to these talking points again and again, even in the context of seeing them debunked lodges them in your freaking head <laughs> so you end up even if you see a thing debunked again and again the talking point sticks in your head and you end up sort of like believing it so it's you know it's this horns of the dilemma that the left is on again and again which is misinformation seems to work but there doesn't seem to be any reliable way to stop or suppress it yeah there's a famous uh study on
1: on this that i'm sure you're referring to, which is around some ads that Listerine ran in the 70s, where they internally knew that Listerine wouldn't do this, but they ran these ads that said that by using Listerine mouthwash, you could prevent the common cold, or if you got a cold, (laughs) it was a really good remedy. Um, and they sold tons of Listerine this way. They ran all these TV ads with moms telling their kids, yeah. oh, "Come on over, need your Listerine." <laughs> and so the FTC caught them and sued them, and ended up making them, as a part of the lawsuit, run ads that basically said, "Sorry, we were wrong and <laughs> correct the claim." Uh, this is definitely a different time of uh, yes, American- imagine communications and regulation. But uh, even after running this multi-million dollar campaign to sort of correct the record, people, when they were surveyed, still believed that Listerine would prevent or w- was a good remedy for the common cold. And it was something like 80% of people still believed that Listerine had these, these effects. So this is a famous study in misinformation science, uh, and it just speaks to how difficult it is to change people's minds once that information has hit them.
0: Yeah, so I guess here's where I kind of come around on this. If we think that, you know, trying to get tech platforms to uniformly uh, impose standards of accuracy on all the trillions of bytes of information that pass through them seems kind of impossible and you know, Changing people's minds after they've already seen this stuff is very difficult. It just kind of seems like the only solution with you're your left with is do the opposite, right? <laughs> Get good information into people's hands. So here's my question to you, and there's no good answer to this question, so I don't expect you to have one. But on the right, okay, you've got these billionaires. They funnel tons and tons of money and establish this broad network of think tanks, which then go on to share lessons about how to oppose these things they don't like, which they funnel down to local groups, which are more or less kind of disguised as spontaneous citizen groups. And you've got other people on the right, you know, got Prager alone spending like $20 million in the last four or five years on Facebook ads so that they become, you know, they get their message out ubiquitously on Facebook. So as we've discussed, there's this entire coherent ecosystem of right wing. And this is of course, you know, all of this is just clean energy entering this ecosystem, but this ecosystem goes way, way back. They've been building this forever. They've been using it against all the things they don't like. This is just sort of like clean energy getting absorbed into that Borg. So (laughs) my question is, what is the analog on the left among people who support renewable energy. Is anybody, are there any billionaires? Where are the billionaires? Are there? Is there a network of think tanks that I'm not aware of? Are there, you know, AstroTurf groups, pro-renewable energy AstroTurf groups? Is there someone spending $20 million on pro-renewable energy Facebook ads? Is any of this mirrored on the left?
1: So I think one of the good things that the climate movement has going for it is that the facts are on the movement's side <laughs> that's and the such, science. That's
0: such a <laughs> tiny weapon, Michael. That's the least of that's the least effective weapon in the whole war.
1: <laughs> so I, I mention it though, because I think that there's a lot of free media, if you will, that comes by reporters and documentaries and all this uh stuff that is really brought climate change into the public's awareness in the last 10 years. Um, I think that is largely a result of media going back, of course, to The Inconvenient Truth and some of the advocacy of Al Gore. But now Netflix has all of these documentaries. Whenever I talk to my friends who are not in this world, they'll tell me that they learned about clean energy and climate change from a Netflix documentary. But to maybe more directly answer your question, like, more overt attempts to change minds or to influence advocacy, Um, there's a YouTube channel that I've been watching for the last year that's become pretty popular called Climate Town. And it's a John Oliver, Stephen Colbert style of humor, all focused on climate change and clean energy and the fossil fuel uh, industry's attempts to block clean energy. Raleigh Williams started this channel and had this career in stand-up comedy, and decided to use his skills to (laughs) uh, fight the good fight. And his videos have hundreds of thousands, some sometimes millions of views, uh, spreading messages. Like uh, I first saw him when he made a video about the negative health impacts of gas stoves and talking about alternatives like induction cooktops. Um, So that's one channel. He's recently partnered with a nonprofit climate change makers that does climate advocacy and trains people on how to be effective advocates in their local community and also in federal politics.
0: I was going to say like the missing piece, what would happen on the right is if a promising YouTuber emerged and got hundreds of thousands of clicks for spreading their message, they would be descended on by a swarm of people giving them money and setting them up so that they could do it on a bigger level forever and never have to worry about money again. Like they would be immediately absorbed into the right wing money, money train, (laughs) you know?
1: Right. Yeah.
0: There's no, where's the analog for that? That's what's missing. It's not, you don't have like tons of creative, interesting young people out doing cool things. Where is the infrastructure of money and organization that finds them Elevates them, supports them, connects them with one another. Like, yeah. Where is that, Michael? I don't know why I'm demanding this of you. <laughs> like, well, well
1: the, I, uh, I I will also just make a shameless plug and say that I am launching a YouTube channel in the coming weeks and am planning to produce Vox-style explainers uh, to kind of speak to your alma mater. Um, I think their <laughs> YouTube channel is amazing and reaches it's millions fantastic. of people. And what I'm planning to do is turn some of these investigations that I've done on Prager U, for example, is going to be the first video and try to get them in front of large audiences and put in a lot of production value to it. So I'm hoping to be able to sort of counter some of those messages.
0: Well, let's talk in a year and see if any left-wing billionaires have gotten in touch with you after you do that for a while. I'd be very curious. <laughs> yeah.
1: Another effort that I think is is really valuable, and again, to talk about... Uh, your alma mater, Vox. Um, I was recently uh, reading some stories in their column Future Perfect about uh, the future of plant-based diets and really talking about the environmental and other ethical harms that are caused by the meat and dairy industry. And I noticed as I was reading that, that that project has been supported by donors. And so I know that Vox doesn't (laughs) take any money and then let those
0: donors including some uh, uncomfortable donors <laughs> oh interesting future perfect got a lot of money from sam bankman fried that's a whole different subject oh, but uh no, really i mean it just just goes to make my point like even when we try <laughs> to do the left-wing billionaire funds good messages things it somehow still turns into a dumpster fire oh god we need better, we need better billionaires i think yeah Or no billionaires might be the the best Uh, solution. (laughs) Billionaires working toward a world where there are no billionaires. Yeah.
1: But yeah, I mean, I think to just get to your point, like I don't think that environmental groups have figured this out. And I think that the right is so much more effective at getting people emotionally charged. And I think evidence of this is if you look at some of the, local communities where these fights are happening over clean energy, even though there's so much information out there on the benefits of clean energy and the problem of climate change. In the example I saw most recently of a community in Michigan last week, this community polled at like 55% of people support clean energy in their community. But someone sent me an image of the township meeting where they were voting on it. And there was hundreds of people packed in an auditorium And this person told me.
0: Were they old and white, Michael? They were all old and white. (laughs) And only three of
1: those hundreds of people were there to support the clean energy project. Uh. So I think that speaks to how much emotion plays in this. Like If you hear about how clean energy has some benefits and it might provide some tax base for your school, it's like you might feel like you support it. But you're not going to feel as right. emotionally charged as if you see a picture of a wind turbine on fire or think that it's going to cause your kids cancer. And unfortunately, that's what the right is doing.
0: I've said this so many times on this podcast, might as well say it again. Intensity wins in politics. This is a point you're sort of making again and again, like a large group of mildly supportive people is useless <laughs> in the face of a small group of intensely motivated people because intensely motivated people make noise and politicians hear noise. Politicians cannot distinguish, you know, large groups from small groups. All they hear is noise. And if you make a lot of noise, uh, you win. And this is something, you know, I talked with, uh, David Fenton, the left PR guy on a pod a while back. And this is something he told me again and again, like in the, the green groups, there are millions, hundreds of millions of dollars floating around through these groups. And they produce endless sort of studies and white papers and reports and do sort of behind-the-scenes policy work, but they just don't spend on propaganda, to, to use the <laughs> charged term for it. They don't go out and spend $20 million buying Facebook ads. And you know the point he made is like it's not that expensive to buy a bunch of ads on Facebook, to buy an ad in the New York Times or Wall Street Journal, to buy ads to carpet the sort of metro stations in DC, you know, where, where policymakers are walking around it doesn't cost that much. And they have a bunch of money. They just don't, they just are not habituated to act that way. And so I hope that like, among other things, your, your work here, sort of showing how this ecosystem works and showing how well it works will just like knock someone's head together, who's funding these left groups and cause them to get in the business of communicating and trying to change the public's mind, you know, instead of just putting out facts like you say, like good reports, you know, like a like spreadsheets on the tax <laughs> impacts and just and just hoping people take those facts and translate them themselves into emotion. You've got to give people the emotion. You've got to do some communicating and propagandizing and like you it, we're doing none and they're doing an amazing Amount coordinated across the entire country. Can I ask a question of
1: you and uh, see what, what are your thoughts on a effective version of this on the left that I've seen that's very controversial? Oh sure. So I haven't made up my mind on on this debate, but something that has been hotly debated in the climate community over the last year is a lot of the rhetoric around like the world is ending, climate change is going to. Wreak havoc on the planet. Your kids' lives are going to be terrible because of climate change. These like kind of over the top types of rhetoric. Um, I, I listened to Adam McKay on your podcast. Uh, he came on a couple times, and the second time when he was talking about Build Back Better, I was just struck by how he was kind of taking this extreme stance of climate change. And at the time, I was thinking Build Back or the, um, the Inflation Reduction Act rather was a, a great bill. After this conversation, I'm wondering if that rhetoric is needed and if the sort of emotionally charged language is maybe more effective than some of the debates around permitting reform or, uh, <laughs> or around the policy and all of that. But I guess just to ask the question, like, do you think that some of that rhetoric and the exaggeration maybe of, of how bad climate change will be is effective?
0: I... Like you am ambivalent about it. <laughs> I think my take is it's a little bit like one hand clapping, you know, like you need, I think fear does motivate people. I think the idea that fear doesn't motivate people is just ludicrous. Like fear motivates people to do all sorts of things. <laughs> but you need, I mean, this is, the problem is on both the right and the left, it's just much easier to oppose things. It's And it's just much easier to gin up emotion in opposition to things. I and mean, this is one of the reasons that the climate activist movement sort of seems drawn inexorably to fighting pipelines and fighting things and fighting wells and all these things because you can get people in the streets for that. You know, like that's why the Keystone Pipeline, despite its sort of, you know, irrelevance in the grand carbon picture, sparked a whole giant march and a whole giant movement because people are fired up by opposing things. And, and the, the, the riddle to me is. Which I do not know the answer to is how, if you're a Prager you or if you're a left wing billionaire, uh, how to spark passion and real fire in favor of things, in favor of building things, right? Because we just like, we got to pivot now to building things. You, you know this, we've been talking about this online. The whole movement needs to pivot to building a shitload of stuff. Like, we got to build faster and more than we've ever built in our lives. And so how do you create passionate, fired up support such that people will go to these meetings and yell and scream in support of building things? And I just I just hate to end this podcast on a, on a note of bafflement, but I really don't know. I mean, do you have any ideas?
1: Like you, I am uh, not overly optimistic on... <laughs> on on some of this, but I think there's probably enough cynicism or pessimism out there. So maybe just to end on some inspiring note, I think the most recent abundance movement or uh, supply side progressivism that yeah. some of the folks like um, Derek Thompson at the Atlantic and Ezra Klein at uh, the New York Times now uh, are talking about is really important. I think that the... the left has probably become too skeptical of technology, and in some cases for really great reasons. But I think that we need to start talking about a really beautiful and uh, amazing future that we can build. And we need to continue to focus on how much harm there will be from climate change and and how bad it could be, because I do think fear motivates. But we also need to give people that picture of the future that's inspiring. And I think some nonprofits that are starting to do this in terms of communications and policy or groups like rewiring America Mm. um, and other groups that are talking about how the clean energy transition represents one of the most amazing opportunities to really build this beautiful, clean future that, could raise incomes for people and make all of our lives a lot better. And I don't think that we talk about the benefits of that or paint that picture for people. Because if we built this sort of clean energy utopia that I think is in a lot of our optimistic vision, we would be talking about ideally not sitting in traffic for nearly as many hours as as we yeah. do if we built great public transit. Like if you've ever been to countries like Japan or The Netherlands, you know that there's this other model that we can have. And it's incredible. Like sitting on a train reading a book instead of sitting in traffic (laughs) sucking up nitrogen dioxide uh, emissions is pretty incredible. And uh, to be able to save millions of lives by reducing fossil fuel pollution and to hopefully use the clean energy transition as a way to shift power and give it to the people who don't have power and who have been marginalized, I think that, that represents this incredible utopia that we probably don't talk about it enough. And I think that that can be motivating and can get some people to act. Um, so I, I won't put my own butt in there. I'll just maybe
0: leave it at that sort of naive optimism. I'm struggling to contain my own butt there. So we'll, we'll leave it there uh, in a happy place. If there are any, you know, liberal billionaires out there listening, that's a good place to Channel your money. Um, if not there, somewhere else. Please do something. <laughs> P- please witness this network of moneyed groups and intellectual launderers and <laughs> quasi-local groups that has you know mobilized against you. And do something. Absolutely. And <laughs> maybe just to make one more
1: call to action that I think everyone can do: just share a really quick story. Over the holidays, I decided I was finally going to talk about climate change more with my family and talk about some (laughs) political topics.
0: I hope you read all the articles, you know, how to talk to your family about climate change. There's about 5,000 of those out there. I did. And I I was honestly a little
1: skeptical of of some of this, um, but had been hearing this uh, from people like Dr. Catherine Hayhoe and the importance of talking about climate change. And so I brought this up and also... The importance of plant-based diets and how how bad uh, the conditions for that turkey that we ate were and how it was in uh, a terrible environment, which was a little bit uncomfortable as the turkey was (laughs) sitting there um, to maybe just paint a picture of of my Thanksgiving. But um, my brother pulled me aside uh, the next day and he's much more conservative and hunts a lot and Mm. um, does not talk to people about Climate change often. Um, <laughs> so, very different politics than me, but he was really pushing back and asking me some questions, and I was answering and not really holding back and talking about climate change. And uh, he called me a couple days later and he said, Hey, so I was looking into getting a new car and um, I was planning on just getting this truck, uh, but after our conversation, I got really excited about electric vehicles. And so um, I'm getting an EV. And <laughs> hey. he sends me a text a couple of days later with a picture of, of this new car. And then I saw him uh, another couple of days later. And he says, you know, after our conversation, I was just thinking a lot about the importance of eating less meat. And so I decided I'm going to start eating less meat. And I'm going to start talking to my friends about it because they don't really hear about this stuff as much. And I think it's important and of course, I'm like sobbing uh, happy <laughs> tears at this point, um, but it was, wow. it was this really beautiful moment. And I think that's something that we can all do. Even if we don't have a billion dollars, we can just talk about this stuff and talk about the benefits of of climate uh, action and, and clean energy uh, with our friends and our family.
0: Yeah. Each one to each one. Thank you, uh, Michael, for diving into this squalid area and uh, wading through bad uh, YouTube videos to bring us all this information and uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. It was a really fun conversation. Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf Yes, that's Volts so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.